0: Please rise for the reading of the word. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Akaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity, about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, Things are not going well for those who return to the providence of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people of Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying your commands, decrees, and regulations that you have given us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you do, what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring back you... Bring, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who, of us who delight in your honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart that I to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. You may be seated.
1: All right. Thank you, Caleb. Caleb got the 11 verses with the hard names in it. Hey, thanks for being here today. Um, My name is Jason. I'm the pastor. If I haven't had a chance to meet you or you're a guest with us today, thanks for coming. We love being in church together. And uh, we say all the time around here, church is not just a service, it's a family. We want you to feel like you belong here. And I know Joe and Jesse had already said something about this at the beginning of service, but I wanted to just um, say something again to you, Uh, and that is that next week, we will be having uh, our friends and family day, and that's gonna be a fun day, Uh, it always is, but we're just having the one service. So again, I know they've talked about this, I just wanna hit it again, that we are having one service at 10.30, and we have more people who attend our church than we have seats in this room. So it's gonna be crowded and busy, and I'll like it, but you probably won't like it, but I'll like it, Uh, but we're gonna have two rooms. Uh, that that we will have, so I would encourage you to maybe get here a little bit early. But the reason we're doing all of this, if there is a little bit of inconvenience for you during the service, is because we wanna give everyone an opportunity after service to be together as a family and to eat together and to hang out. When you have multiple services, sometimes you only get to know half the church. And uh, that's okay, it's it's what we have, it's what we got to work with, and that's okay. Uh, but we wanna try to create the opportunity for you to be able to, to see your family, your church family, And just hang out and and play wiffle ball and, you know, other games and inflatables and all that good stuff. So it's going to be a good time. I just want to remind you, you got to get here earlier. You guys are the 11 o'clock crowd, which means you sleep in on Sunday mornings a little bit. Just a reminder, uh, you can show up at 11 if you want to, but there won't be any chairs and I'll be halfway through my sermon. Okay, so be here at 1030 and then hang out. Don't leave after church. Be here with us and hang out with us. It's going to be a really good time. Okay everybody everybody got it say okay. okay all right Thomas Edison said discontent is the first necessity for progress discontent is the first necessity for progress we're starting a new series today called how to begin again again and I don't know about you but that second again hits different um, because there are all these times in my life where I am motivated or inspired to change or to try something again or to try to make something better. And I learn in those moments that my biggest critic is myself. And I, I want things to be better. I want things to improve. I wanna try again. But when those times come, all I can think about is my failures. All I can think about is the promises that I've made that I've broken all I can think about is how I'm gonna embarrass myself because eventually it's just gonna get bad again or it won't get any better or whatever I talked to a friend of mine one time who was going into rehab for his third third time and he said you know the first time that I told everybody I had a problem and I went to rehab everybody was so happy for me and rallied and everybody drove me and you know got me there and celebrated and then the second time, there was a few people, but not near as many. And then the third time I drove myself. He said, you just, people just stop believing that it would be any different. I mean, I can relate to that for myself. I'm not even talking about what other people think about me. I'm just talking about myself, believing that it could be any different. And I don't know about you, but I'm willing to guess that that's probably the, the, uh, the case for you. I think all of us have some discontentment in our life every parent in this room wishes that you could go back and have a couple of do-overs with your kids. Am I right? And so when you start thinking about trying to rebuild that relationship again and again and again, it's like, man, I don't, what's the point? You know, I don't even know if it would ever be any better or, um, you think about your marriage, you know, you think about like, should we give it another go? You know, should we go to another counseling session? Should we try to talk it out again? I mean, what's the point? It's not really going to get any better, I don't think. Your personal finances, your physical health, your relationship with Jesus. It's one thing to try to begin. It's another thing to begin again. But it's a whole other thing to begin again again. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and talking yourself into it and getting the courage together and not listening to shame and not listening to the devil. But listen to what the Bible says, Proverbs twenty four sixteen, famous proverb, it says, the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. They will get up again. He's talking about the godly. So the godly trip, we all fall, we all mess up, we all find ourselves in places we don't want to be, but the godly, they get up again. And man, it's hard to get up again, again, again. You know what I mean? And so that's what we're going to be talking about over these next several weeks together. We're going to be talking about how to, to do that, to give it another try, to rebuild, to, to, to go after um, or try to change these things in our life that we wish we could change or try again again. And um, man, my prayer, my hope, honestly, is just that God would spark something. The Holy Spirit would spark something inside of you that you would believe is possible. You believe it's possible. Things can change. Things can change. Things can get better. You can be a different kind of person. You cannot repeat the past this time around. I want you to believe that. And so what we're going to do uh, to talk about this over the next several weeks is we're just going to use an Old Testament story of Nehemiah. The Bible is made up of two parts. It's made up of the New Testament, which is the life of Jesus and after Jesus, the apostles, the church. And it's the Old Testament. And the, and, the, and the Bible tells us that the Old Testament is great for telling us lessons and principles and stories to help us in our life that it's just as inspired by God as the New Testament, but where the New Testament is probably a little more of the doctrine theology type of stuff. The Old Testament is filled with stories that we can read and take and use and mine them for the nuggets of wisdom that are in them, and use them in our life. This is why we tell the stories to our kids at bedtime, or in uh, children's church, or, or whatever it is. You know, the Noah and the Ark, and and David and Goliath, and and Jonah and Joseph, and all of those uh, all of those stories. There's something in there, and you may never literally face a giant, but you face giants in your life. So we look to David and Goliath, or. Um, You may never get swallowed by a well, but you may feel as if you ran from God and something really bad happened to you. And so we can learn from that that story. And so we're going to do that with Nehemiah. We're going to look at Nehemiah's story because Nehemiah is a story about building again, rebuilding, bringing something back. And we're going to look at his story and just pick out the principles that could help us Um, to do that. And so let me give you just a little bit of context about the story of Nehemiah, where we're at kind of in history and in the Bible to help us uh, with where we're going. This story is about a 1,000 years after Moses. You're probably familiar with Moses. It's about a 1,000 years after Moses. It's 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And it's about a guy who is really not that important. Now, because he has a book in the Bible, we assume he was really important. But if you were living during this time, he would have just have been one of a million faces. He was a servant. And yes, he did work for the king, but a lot of people work for the king. And really his job was just to make sure the wine wasn't poisoned before the king drunk it. So like drank it, like that was his job, you know? And, um, and Nehemiah is his notes. It's his journal. It's his memoir of his life. This seemingly insignificant guy who is going to get some bad news and God is going to use that bad news to spark something inside of him um, to do something pretty significant, even though up to that point, you would have never thought that that was what was planned for his life. And 100, about 150 years before what we're going to read today, Nehemiah's ancestors, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, they were defeated in battle and they became exiles. Not only did they lose the war, but they were taken from their homeland and they were taken to live in, uh, under Babylonian rule. This is where we get stories in the Old Testament like um, uh, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Esther and Amos. And these are people who are God's people who are living in a different place, under different rule, under different uh, leadership. And so that happens about 150 years before Nehemiah, a new king comes into power. His name is King Cyrus. And King Cyrus says, you still have to be Babylonians, but I'll let you go back and live in your hometown. So you're still under our rule, but if you wanna go back home, you can go back home. There are about two or 3 million Jewish Hebrew people who have the opportunity to go back home But it's been two generations and, you know, they like their neighborhood. And so they're not that motivated to go. And out of about two or three million, 50,000 or so of the Jewish people decide to go home. A very small percentage decide to go home. And when they get home, they don't find it how they left it. You ever go back home and realize, like, "This this ain't how I remembered it? You know what I mean? Like, it's a lot smaller or uglier or whatever, you know? Well, they go back home and their houses are torn down and the streets, you know, are messed up and the farms are no longer farm fields and there's nothing there. And most importantly, the walls of the city, which represent the boundaries, the protection of your land. If you've seen, you know, any of the time period movies, you know, like Lord of the Rings or Troy or any of those like. You need the walls because the walls is your defense, you know, against people attacking you. Well, they get back home and they realize everything is in ruins. All throughout the Old Testament, you see this idea, this word of ruins. And the reason they were in this position is because they turned their back on God. And God said, if you follow me, you're going to be the most prosperous prosperous, uh, uh, people, your land, I have this land for you. But if you keep turning your back on me, I'm going to let you have what you want. I'm going to let you be like everybody else. And so that's what happened. They come back home now, you know, 70 years or so, uh, 80 years or so after this, and it's, it's just in shambles. And this is a great opportunity for us to stop right now and to just kind of examine our life and, 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 and ask ourselves, is there anything in our life that we would say is in ruins? What, what would we look at and say, you know what? I imagined at this point in my life, it would be better than this. It wouldn't be in this bad a shape. It's in ruins. Again, examples we've given marriage, parenting, physical health, finances, some relationships, maybe relationships with your, your parents or your kids or whatever it is. You would say, it's not just a little bit off. It's, it's in ruins. It's ruined. That's where we pick up this story. Nehemiah uh, lives not in his hometown. He is living in under Babylonian rule, working for a Babylonian king. And one day his friends come from his hometown. They had moved back and Nehemiah asked them, how is it going? And they say to him, it's not going good. And they give him this, this update about what's happening. And in this moment, when he gets this bad news, God begins to put something in Nehemiah's heart to go back home and to begin again, to rebuild to rebuild the walls. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over these next several weeks. And we're going to start with three very simple ideas or principles, Uh, but it doesn't mean they're easy. It just means they're not complicated. All right. So here's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to go ahead and tell you in case you're a note taker, I'm going to tell you what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about being honest. We're going to talk about accepting responsibility. And we're going to talk about asking God for help. These are the first three things that we see from the story of Nehemiah if we want to begin again, again. We've got to be honest about where we are. We have to accept responsibility and we have to ask God for help. So I want to just talk about each of those points with you and help us get started uh, on whatever in our life needs to be rebuilt, all right? So the first thing that we see out of Nehemiah's story is we see uh, Nehemiah be incredibly honest about what's going on in his life. This is in verses 3 or 4 Caleb read to us. Nehemiah writing in his own memoir, his own journal said of his friends, he said, they said to me, things are not going well. That's a really hard thing to hear. I don't know about you, but you know, my first instinct when somebody tells me things are not going well is to either blame the person who's telling me or assume they're not, they don't know what they're talking about. You ever had a teacher call you about your kid? You know what I'm talking about? One of my kids, when they call, we're like, we totally believe you. That, we believe them about that kid. But the other one, you're like, it's probably the teacher's fault, right? I mean, if you're not getting the best out of my kid, it's probably your fault. Or the coach, you know, if you're not getting the best out of my kid, it's probably your fault. Or your boss comes to you and says, well, your work's not, it's not going well. You're, and you say, well, if, I, if you led me better, or you gave me better responsibilities, or, you know, whatever it is. Our first instinct when someone tells us it's not going well is to not believe them. But that's not what Nehemiah did. They tell him that the walls have been torn down, the gates have been destroyed. And verse four, when he heard this, I sat down and wept for days I mourned, fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. The first thing that we see in Nehemiah's story is incredible honesty. Incredil- incredible honesty about the condition that things are in. And I think it's incredibly significant that Nehemiah's story begins with weeping, mourning, fasting, and prayer. It doesn't begin with, uh, you know, tools. It doesn't begin with blueprints. It doesn't begin with motivational jargon. It begins with a man who hears the truth about the condition of something and someone who gives himself the time and the space to feel what it is that he's feeling and face the facts about what it is that is in front of him. The emotion of sadness is what he is experiencing here. He's probably experiencing a lot more than sadness, but the emotion of sadness is something that he's experiencing and it's something that we all experience because sadness is what you feel, whether you realize it or not. Sadness is what you feel anytime you believe you've lost something or you're losing something. Anytime you believe you've lost something or losing something, you are experiencing sadness. And when that is happening, the easiest thing in the world to do is to be angry because anger is always easier than sadness because yelling is always easier and tougher than crying. And so when we're losing things in our life or we have lost something in our life, our instinct is to be angry about it, to lash out about it, instead of sitting in that sadness and mourning and grieving what it is that we lost. And this is what Nehemiah did. And instead of grieving or being sad, we usually reframe the situation. It's not that bad. It'll be okay. What a lot of us do now is we, we're masters of sarcasm or wit or humor, And so we take the tragic stories of our life and make them humorous, right? But what Nehemiah does here is he takes the time, historians believe, up to four months. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But he takes the time to be sad, to grieve, to mourn. The fasting that he's doing here is not necessarily fasting for something good to have, and it's more of a fasting of grieving that we see in the Bible so I would love for you to take just a moment, we don't do this a lot in church, maybe we should do it more, I don't know, but I would love for you to take just a moment and to just consider consider right now in your life over the last few seasons of your life, or maybe it's not in the last few seasons, but as I'm talking about it, something's coming to mind or in your heart right now. I would love for you to just consider for a moment, what is it that you feel like you've lost? What is it that you feel like you're losing? right now in your life? Some of you, that'll be an easy question to answer. You say, I lost my mom, or I lost my dad, or I lost my job, or I lost my house. That's a very literal, tangible losing. But if you went even a little bit deeper in that, maybe you would realize that you lost confidence. You lost innocence. You lost faith in someone, you lost your health, or you lost something in your life that made you feel like you had security. I wanna give you just a moment. I want you to think about it. What is it that you feel like you've lost? If something came to mind for you, or maybe it will come to mind this week, you wanna think about that. It's really important that you take the time to be sad about that, to grieve that, to not just move on past it and say, oh, it's not that big deal, or to not listen to the voice of shame that says, move on, get over it, don't be so soft, but to really grieve and and, and mourn that loss, to face the facts, it's gone, it is over, it didn't work, whatever it is, and this is what Nehemiah does right here. His friends give him an update that says, it's not going well, it's all in ruins. And Nehemiah doesn't say like, why y'all, why y'all being so negative? He says, he weeps, he mourns, he fasts, he prays. This is the starting point. It needs to be the first starting point for you and me. We have to face the truth about where we are. We have to face the truth about where we are. No more denial, no more false optimism, no more reframing. We wanna face the truth, we wanna face the truth. It's not good, it's not good. But we don't wanna stay there. We don't wanna stay in pity, we don't wanna stay in this woe is me, life's not fair, life's awful, it's never gonna get any better. We're not gonna stay at this sad grieving mourning place but we have to start there because we wanna be honest about where, where we are. But after we take some time to be honest about where we are, to stop denying the reality of where life is or what it is that we are needing to begin again, the second thing that we have to do that Nehemiah did is we have to accept responsibility. We have to accept responsibility. Verse six and seven, now Nehemiah, his friends have left. He's praying to God and this this is what he says in his prayer. He says, I confess that we have sinned against you, talking to God, Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant, Moses. This is really significant what Nehemiah is saying, and we kind of miss it because we don't understand the time frame. But Nehemiah is saying, this is my fault when he wasn't even alive when it happened, He was born two generations later after they were defeated, after they had turned their backs on God. The the decrees and laws that he's talking about breaking were given by Moses a thousand years ago. Nehemiah didn't do this. Nehemiah hadn't turned his back on God. That's not why the land was destroyed. But Nehemiah was able somehow to look at the situation and say, I understand that I'm a part of this too. I'm, I'm a sinner. I turn my back on God and if I was them and if I was alive when I was them, I probably would have done the same thing. And I understand that I'm not above them or I'm not better than them. In essence, he says to God, this is my fault. Nehemiah is taking personal responsibility for the condition of his home. He's saying, I am us, I am a part of this. This isn't their fault. This is our fault and this is my fault, me and my family. And we live in a culture right now and a society right now that says, that's not my problem, that's not my fault, don't put that on me. But there's something really powerful about being able to say, I'm not taking responsibility for someone else's actions, but I am taking responsibility for the role that I play in the problems that I see. And I think this is a really important conversation we need to have, this idea of accepting responsibility because we live in this polarized political world that preaches two extremes. Everything's so extreme, right? So you got one group that says, nothing is your fault. Nothing is your fault. If you're in debt, that's not your fault. If you're overweight, that's not your fault. It's McDonald's fault. If if you're unhappy, that's not your fault. It's your boss's fault. Nothing is your fault. It's about your surrounding and your circumstances and life's unfair. And that's just the way that it is. And this extreme message preaches zero accountability or personal responsibility. Zero. Okay. But then the other side says, if you're in trouble or your life is not what you want, it's all your fault. It's all your fault. There's nothing holding you back. You pick yourself up by your bootstraps and you just need to decide to do better. And there's nothing in your way. But that's not true either. Both of those are wrong. I just want to give you one example of this. I was reading uh, a couple of months ago, I read this book called uh, Willpower and I, I wouldn't recommend you read it. It's, it's pretty dense, but I'm going to tell you what it's about. So I'm going to save you the time, okay? But um, it's, it's really just a book of, of research by a guy named Roy ba- 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 Mister, And he spent about three or four decades focused on this idea of willpower. He wanted to know what is willpower and why does it seem like more people have it and other people don't. And the whole book, uh, again, I found it fascinating. I don't think you would. But the whole book, he really sums it down to two things. After four decades of research, here's what he says. He says, we think of willpower as this superhuman strength, but it's not. He said willpower is based on two things. It's based on your consistent surroundings, and it's based on your blood sugar levels. That's it. Study after study after study after study shows that if you are consistently in places that do not require you to make the right decision against the grain of the pressure of the wrong decision, let's use something super, super cliche or, or stereotypical. If you said, I'm trying to stay sober, but you leave work every day and go sit at the bar with your friends who are drinking, but you say you're not going to drink, you will drink eventually. Because of your consistent surroundings, right? The positive is also true. If you say, I'm going to go to the gym with my friends, but I'm not going to work out. But you just keep going to the gym with your friends, guess what you're going to do? Work out, okay? Consistent surroundings. That's the first thing. But the second thing, which everybody's like, what is your blood sugar level? It's your glucose. Now listen, here's what he said. Over and over and over and over again, study after study after study showed that when your blood sugar levels are low, they actually call it ego depletion, and that you do the stupidest stuff when, when your glucose levels are low. And if it, where it gets really crazy is that they were able, in, in a few studies, to show a direct correlation between blood sugar levels and criminal activity. They went into one juvenile detention facility and did tests and found that 90% of the juveniles had lower than average blood or glucose, glucose levels. Now, they were not saying that it wasn't that these kids shouldn't be held responsible for the decisions they made. What they were trying to say was, it's not as simple as saying that's a good kid and that's a bad kid. Because there's, there are other things going on and happening in, in their life that factors into the decisions that they are making. And, and so the foods that you eat, they, they, they have all kinds of studies, humorous studies about decisions that they made after lunch. If you have an important, important meeting, you need to do it, to do it before, shh, just heads up, right? And, and so if you want something, something and so, oh, uh, or just do it before lunch. But as I, as I was reading this, it was just, just another reminder to me that, that yes, no one's going to responsibility for, you for your life. That responsibility, your life is your, your responsibility. That is, that is a true statement. You, you have to take responsibility for your life. But what is also true is that you are fighting against thousands of factors that work against you, making it hard to do the right thing. The idea that you are not responsible at all and nothing's fault and the, and the idea that everything is your fault, both those are inaccurate. The reality is you're responsible for your life, but every day you're working against all kinds of things that are making it hard to do the right thing. So there has to be some type of responsibility, some type of accountability. If you're here and you, you're, you're thinking about the things in your life that are in ruin, what you've probably done because you're a human being is you've created narratives that shift all of the blame off of you or you've accepted some of the inconsequential blame and you've shifted all the blame onto someone else and what Nehemiah does here is he repents, he takes responsibility and he, rep- he re- repents. He isn't blaming anyone else. He doesn't go to God and say, God, you know, I mean, it ain't that big a deal, you know, um, no. He goes to God and he said, God, I just heard really bad news. I just, found, I just accepted the truth something really painful and something embarrassing and something humiliating and something awful and something I wish I could do something about. I just heard that. And God, I want you to know I'm sorry because I played a part in this. I played a part in it. He can see in himself how he has contributed to the problem. So let's just stop for a moment again and let's just ask ourselves the question, whatever it is you're thinking about or the multiple things you're thinking about that you're wanting to begin again, again. We want to face the truth about it, but I think it's also worth asking, can you in any way see how you've contributed to the problem? As you've told the story a thousand times over and over again, have you perfected the story to where it was none, none of it was your fault? Or a little bit of it's your fault, but not anything that really would have mattered anyway? Or have you convinced yourself that it's not worth trying again until someone else is willing to do something about it? Nehemiah here is able to see how he contributes to the problem. And so you can have change in your life or you can have excuses, but you cannot have both. It doesn't mean that there are not legitimate facts about your story, but a fact is a fact. An excuse is a fact with a narrative. Wow. A fact is a fact. Your parents did get divorced. Your boss is a jerk. You, your, your financial situation, you did start behind the eight ball. These things are, are true. Your, your ethnicity, your age, your skin color, these things are true. Those are facts. But an excuse is a fact with a narrative. It's because of that that I can't or whatever it is. And so as you think about where you need to begin again, what excuses could you eliminate? Sorry. What condition are you in? What condition are, are you in that you would say, I contributed to this. God, I need to repent of this. I'm not going to talk to you about their problems or what they did anymore. I'm going to talk to you about what I did. I had a, um, a friend Uh, in the last couple of years who went through something really, really bad at work and was done wrong in a lot of significant ways and um, lost his job and really had to rebuild uh, in a lot of ways. And for several years, he would tell the story and, you know, as his friend, I agreed with a lot of what he was saying. There was just a lot of they, 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 they. And, Uh, My friend was talking to one of his pastors one day and his pastor said to him, listen, I hear you and I I totally understand what you're saying, but until you're willing to take at least 50% of the responsibility, you'll never get over it. You'll never get over it because you you have something to hold on to. But until you're able to look in the mirror and say, it was probably half my fault, half their fault, at a minimum, you'll never be able to get over it. So just as you're praying and talking to Jesus, I want you to just keep trying to ask, what did I contribute to this? What did I contribute to this? That is personal responsibility. That is acceptance. So we want to be honest and we want to take responsibility. We see Nehemiah doing this, but we don't want to just stay right there because if we just stay right there, then we're just going to be stuck in this cycle of shame and and woe is me and all of these things. We want to see the truth. We want to eliminate excuses. But lastly, and this is where the best part, this is where it turns on us, is we want to ask God for help. We want to ask God for help. Verse 11, Nehemiah says, O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. He's going to go see the king. Put it in his heart to be kind. Nehemiah goes and asks God to help him with this endeavor that he has now in his heart. And I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to ask God for help when it's my fault. You know what I'm talking about? Like I, or, or things that I feel like are not spiritual, like I'm not allowed to talk about it. But more and more I'm realizing that every problem is a spiritual problem. Every problem in my life is connected to my interior life to my soul, heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's nothing that's happening in my life that's not affecting my heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is what I wanna love God with. And so I should be talking to God about every problem. I should be asking God for help with every problem, even all the problems that were my stupidity or all the problems that I think seem insignificant because it's affecting my interior life. And so I go to God and I begin to try to believe again that it's not a lost cause, that I'm not hopeless, that God will help me, that God wants to help me. I wanna bring my marriage to him. I wanna bring my kids to him. I wanna bring my money to him. I wanna do it God's way. I'm asking for favor. I'm not just asking for a bailout, even though I ask for lots of bailouts. I'm going to God and I'm saying, God, I want to do something about this. I'm, I'm honest about how bad it is. I've accepted responsibility for the role that I play in it. I'm repenting of that and I wanna do something about it. God, will you help me? Will you help me? God, I'm gonna have that conversation I've been avoiding. Will you help me? I'm gonna humble myself and apologize. Will you help me? I'm gonna make some changes that go against 30 years of ingrained habits in my life. Will you help me? I'm gonna eliminate some relationships in my life that I know I need to eliminate. Will you help me? I'm coming to you, God, admitting it's bad and admitting that it is my fault and I need you to help me. Historians believe that Nehemiah prayed for four months before he did anything. Now, we're gonna get to it a little bit later, but when he actually goes home and builds the wall, it only takes him 52 days. He prays for four months and he acts for less than two months and the job gets done. He spends twice as much time praying as he does acting, working. And I just wonder, I'm not saying it's apples to apples. I'm not saying we can just literally take it off the page and apply it to our life. But I just wonder, I just wonder what would happen if you said, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm about to end the marriage. But if you said before I do, I'm gonna take the next four months. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bring anything up. I'm not gonna fight. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just gonna take four months and I'm just gonna pray and fast. And I'm gonna accept where we are and I'm gonna ask God to change me and to, forg- and, to, and to forgive me and the role that I've played in this and ask God to help. Before I try to do anything or ask them for anything, I'm just gonna spend four months talking to God about it and asking God to change me before he does, changes anything else in my life. I wonder what would happen. I'm being facetious, I know exactly what would happen. It would change, it would change. If we spent more time praying, more time fasting, more time repenting, more time grieving, more time feeling before we tried to act out in some way, I think we would find that the change that we're looking for in our life, not saying it's gonna be easy, but I'm saying it's gonna be easier. Than we think it would be because we spent time with God, bringing it to God and asking him to start with us. Start with me. Start with me, God. And so we want to be honest. We want to take responsibility and we want to ask God to help us, to give us favor in this endeavor. And I don't know what it is that you're facing or what it is that needs to be rebuilt or what it is that needs to begin again. I don't know how defeated you feel. I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not acting like I do, but I know, and we learn from Nehemiah, it can get better. It can change. Jesus can do something miraculous. Over and over again, the prophets say in the Old Testament that God will come in and he will rebuild the ruins. We just have to return to him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, if you build your life on my words and my teaching, you're gonna build a house that will stand when all the craziness of life tries to come and ruin it. It's gonna stand, the walls will stay. But if you don't, then when the storm comes, the walls will fall. But all you have to do is take one step in the right direction to be going in the right direction. I don't know how bad it is or how far you've gone, but just go one step towards him. Go back to him. Build your life on him. Build your marriage on him. Build your money on him. Build your parenting on him. Build your life on him. Build your career on him. Do it his way and see what he may do. In just a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to take communion. And when you do, whether you realize it or not, you are remembering that our Savior, Jesus Christ, died on a cross was placed in a tomb, but three days later, when it seemed like it was over and everything was ruined, he resurrected from the dead. To be a Christian means to believe at our core in the idea of resurrection, that dead things come to life. Dead things live again. That's what we believe in as Christians. So my hope and my prayer for you is that whatever it is in your life that's dead will live again but it's gotta start with honesty, responsibility, and asking God for help. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus that you did not just give us a model to to follow in the way that we live, but you also gave us an example of something that rose from the dead. And so God, I'm praying for every person in the room who is uh, staring death in the face, staring something that is ruined in the face. They're discouraged. They feel hopeless. They're defeated. They feel cynical. I pray that we would believe it's not hopeless. It's not over. It can begin again. It can resurrect. It can get better. It can change. But God, I pray you would give us the courage to start by coming to you and asking you to begin with us, change us, God, before you change anything around us, before you change anyone around us, God, change us, work on us. No more denial, no more fake optimism, no more reframing, God, we wanna face it head on, take responsibility and ask you to begin with us. God, I pray that we would have the courage to begin again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.